You know, good health is the best inheritance you can possibly pass down. So the sooner you can replace what's missing in your kid's diet, the stronger, smarter, and so much healthier they'll become. That's why Child Life Essentials should be your new best friend. They have a complete award-winning range of natural supplements and multivitamins for kids from birth to late teens. Child Life Vitamins have been specifically formulated to address the key issues and challenges kids deal with daily like brain development, immune support, and their little bodies growing properly. Child Life Essentials are the world's most loved children's vitamins for a reason. They're all natural, non-GMO, gluten-free, and allergy-friendly when possible. And best of all, kids love the taste. So take a look at the Child Life range. It's exactly the foundation they need to thrive throughout childhood and to succeed beyond. You can learn more at childlifenutrition.com. I am passionate about anti-racism and I am passionate about helping you understand why this is so critically important. And I don't know if you know this, but racism is a public health epidemic. And we need to unlearn and learn and be better and do better. And I am so thrilled to have two incredible books today with three incredible authors. The first one is the amazing comedian, love him, W. Kamau Bell with his latest book, The Anti-Racist Activity Book that he wrote with Kate Schatz. And it's flipping great. And I also just read another book, and this is going to be an interview right after W. Kamau which is Our Problem, Our Path, Collective Anti-Racism for White People. It is by Ali Michael and Eleonora Bartoli. So sit back, listen, enjoy. And I really hope that you will take this information to heart, get these books, and let's all make this world a better place. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. I am so excited. I haven't been this excited since I had Henry Winkler on the program. So today we are having W. Kamau Bell on the program to talk about the book he did with Kate Schatz, Do the Work, an anti-racist activity book. W. Kamau Bell is a dad, husband, and comedian. He directed and executive produced a four-part Showtime documentary, We Need to Talk About Cosby, which premiered at Sundance. He famously met with the KKK on his Emmy Award-winning CNN docuseries, United Shades of America, with W. Kamau Bell, where he serves as host and executive producer. He has appeared on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, Conan, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, CBS Mornings, MSNBC's Morning Joe, Comedy Central, HBO, Fresh Air with Terry Gross, WTF with Mark Marin, The Breakfast Club, and This American Life. He has two stand-up comedy specials, Private School Negro, Netflix, and Semi-Prominent Negro, Showtime. Kamau's writing has been featured in Time, The New York Times, Vanity Fair, The Hollywood Reporter, CNN.com, Salon, and the LA Review of Books. Kamau's first book has an easy-to-remember title. The Awkward Thoughts of W. Kamau Bell tells of a 6'4", African-American, heterosexual, cisgender, left-leaning, asthmatic, black and proud, blurred, mama's boy, dad, and stand-up comedian. He is the ACLU Artist Ambassador for Racial Justice and serves on the Board of Directors of Donors Chose and the Advisory Board of Hollaback. Should I call you W. Kamau? Should I call you Kamau? Kamau. We're friends now. You can call me Kamau. First of all, I'm going to do something very quickly for people who don't know 
Okay, both sets of grandparents, Jewish, paternal grandparents, white flight, 1950s, Chicago neighborhood. They stayed. That became their community. They loved it. Maternal grandparents, Bronx, working class, very close with black families, personal close relationships. My parents taught me very early about the evils of racism. I grew up in a community full of anti-Semites and racists, and I felt more comfortable with the black and brown families in my neighborhood, as well as the boy who wanted to play with dolls and was made fun of and called a girl. So I was more comfortable in marginalized communities, but I'm not going to compare my experiences to people of color because I'm white and I have white privilege. Uh, No, that's good to know. That's good to know. Yeah, We all, I mean, we have a thing in the book called Check Your Privilege, which is about like looking at your level of privilege and where you come from. So you're aware of yourself as like, I am a Jew, but I'm a white, but I'm a Jew who, you know, Jewish Jewish people can look like anything, (laughs) look like anybody, Ethiopian Jews. But you're like, as a white presenting Jewish person, that gives me a level of privilege. So I have, I understand certain levels of oppression, but I also know that I can pass through the world and as a regular white person. So on check your privilege. Oh my gosh, I have so much privilege. Uh, there's a couple of things though. I'm not Christian. I don't know friends in high places and I don't understand the stock market. And by the way, my husband was really happy to see that you had bald on there because he's like, I told you that that's something with a disadvantage. It is so important for people to know the true definition of racism and racism is prejudice plus power. I don't understand why it's so difficult for white people to understand that. And the whole reverse racism thing is so completely insane. And I've had to explain this time and time again. Many of us of a certain generation were, and this is probably everybody even in their 30s at this point, were raised thinking that racism just meant the Ku Klux Klan. That racism just meant, like the same way we were raised that like anti-Semitism just meant Nazis. And so the idea being that like, if I'm not the worst example of the thing, then I'm not, then I'm not connected to it at all. And I think the one thing we have to understand with racism in this country, and many people have said this, and there's many great books about this, is that in America, racism is embedded to every structure and institution in this country. And unless you're actively fighting against it, you're sort of being caught in the wave of racism. You're just sort of like, so as Ibram X. Kendi says, there's there's only racist or anti-racist. There's no middle position. And then if you're going to be an anti-racist, the thing we're trying to say with the book is that there's you have to do that work every day. It's not something you do. It's no different than like whatever working out or exercise means to you. We all know that if you just if you just exercise once a year, you're not going to get the benefit of it. So if you just do anti-racism when you buy Juneteenth ice cream at Walmart, you're not going to get the benefit of it. Or if you just do anti-racism when you change your Instagram square to black because that's what your friend did, that's not actually the work. And the other thing we understand is when you do exercise, when we're fooling ourselves, when you like go to the gym, but you just sort of get a smoothie and sit in a hot tub and, and, you know, and you, and the machines are all taken, but you went into the room with the machine. So it's basically the same. So we know when we're not actually doing the work, when we are exercising, this is the same thing. You have to know the difference between faking doing the work and actually doing the work. And it's also the kind of one of the worst things you can call somebody is a racist. So, and that became like, so you want to, so you want to fight against it instead of going like, I feel the same thing as a man. I remember when a friend of mine said to me, uh, my friend Martha is like, you can't end racism and make sexism worse. And I was like, I am not a sexist. And then she sort of, <laughs> my loving friend Martha went through and go this, 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 and this, you said this, this is a joke you told that's awful. And I, by the end of it, I was like, I was like, you're right. Now I had shame. I felt bad. I felt guilt, but that's all can be motivation to do a better job. So basically the last, since I met Martha in, 
2003 when I also since I've met my wife in 2003 I have learned and gotten smarter about a lot of these issues the activity book is so incredibly smart and by the way you have a really tough word search my daughter's partner had to to help me with that but it was great because my whole family got into the book and when it came my husband immediately grabbed it and took it and I had to like chase him to get it back from him because it's it's just it's just you dive in and you don't want to you don't want to stop, which is exactly what we need. Oh, my gosh. And that freaking corn pop thing. People, you have to get the book so you see what we're talking about. It is insane and horrible. Mm-hmm, Unbelievable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that and a lot of that is stuff that is out there in the world. You can find these things on the Internet. It's just about us putting all these things together to go and then crediting the people who discovered them. That's the other part of this is like a lot of times on the Internet, you find a cool thing and you act like you invented it. And we're trying to make sure that in the back of the book, there are acknowledgments for all the artists. The art was done by fifth, more I think more than 15 black, indigenous, Latinx, a- Asian-American artists of color. Uh, and so, and also like all these different, and like when you say that reg, uh, when you say racism is prejudice plus power, we, that's the thing that we've all talked about, but there's a black woman whose name I can't, but she's in the book. Who's the one who actually talked to the dictionary about changing the dictionary of racism. And they did. So it's like, we have to understand that, like, again, it's not enough to know that somebody actually did the work and often it's a black woman to actually make sure that it actually got changed in the dictionary. I also love the humor in the book. Clearly it's a serious book. But the touch of humor that you add, I think, makes it more accessible. And for people who are defensive, they'll be more willing, I think, to to open up and read. Humor isn't something – people are like, how do you make this stuff funny? I don't think about making it funny. Me and, and, me and Kate, the co-author, it's like we process the world through humor as a way to survive the world. There's a reason right. why often – the, the, the best stand-up comics in the country are produced from the most oppressed groups because it is like you do it not as a way because you're trying to do it. It's the way you process oppression and, and injustice. So for me, it, this is my offering here. This is me and Kate's offering into this anti-racism work that has been built for generations with many amazing authors. So we're not saying this is to replace the work of all these people. It's like you got Ibram X. Kendi, you got Michelle Alexander, you got Alex Haley's book Roots, you got Alex Haley's book The Autobiography of Malcolm X, you got Ava DuVernay's movie 13th about the 13th Amendment. You got there's all these different things. This is just another thing. And the thing that me and Kate bring is humor and a little more of frivolity to it but it doesn't mean that we're, we're still not taking it seriously we are still taking it very seriously all right so tell us all the ways we can get do the work an anti-racist activity book because this book needs to be in everybody's hands and by everybody i mean white people but i think it's also a good book for everybody to look at because we all have internalized racism and bias i would say first thing you do if you have a local bookstore call your local bookstore support your local bookstore and hopefully it's an independent bookstore but whatever it is it is employing your local community support your local bookstores get it there i would say if not that you can go to bookshop.org which is a way to support local bookstores by through the internet (laughs) so you can you're still your money is still going to local independent bookstores and then other that you know there's also the places where we get books that we all know that you can get books so go to that site where you get books and also toilet paper and uh everything else you get Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Health Power. Did you know that racism is a public health crisis? And you know whose problem this is? If you're white, it's your problem. It is our problem. The book that I have in my hand is absolutely fantastic. It is a must read. I read it. I love it. I live it. It is called Our Problem, Our Path, Collective Anti-Racism for White People. It is by Allie Michael and Eleonora Bartoli. 
As a director of the Race Institute for K-12 Educators, Allie Michael, Ph.D., works with schools and organizations across the country to help make research on race, whiteness, and education more accessible and relevant to educators. Allie is the author of Raising Race Questions, Whiteness, Inquiry, and Education, winner of the 2017 Society of Professors of Education and Outstanding Book Award. As a member of a multiracial editorial team, she has co-edited the Guide for White Women Who Teach Black Boys, Teaching Beautiful and Brilliant Black Girls, and Everyday White People Confront Racial and Social Injustice, 15 Stories. Eleonora Bartoli, Ph.D., is a consultant and licensed psychologist specializing in trauma, resilience building, and multicultural and social justice counseling. She earned her Ph.D. in psychology, human development, and mental health research from the University of Chicago in 2001. After receiving her clinical license in 2005, she opened a small independent practice, which she has held since. After 15 years in academia, 12 of those years as a director of a master's in counseling program, she became a full-time consultant. Her mission is to share the tools of counseling and psychology in support of social justice work. I'm so honored to have you on. Thank you for having us. It's so good to be here. So good. Now, for people who don't know, just a little bit about me. I was very blessed because I was raised by grandparents and parents who taught me very early the evils of racism. In the 1950s, my paternal grandparents, when white flight happened in their Chicago neighborhood, they stayed. That was their community. They were the only white family, Jewish white family, and they thrived and they loved it. And they stayed there until my grandfather died and my grandmother had to downsize to a a small apartment. On my mother's side, they lived in the Bronx and they had lots of friends of color and that was their community. And then I was raised the same way. So it doesn't mean I'm perfect. It doesn't mean I don't have to unlearn things, but I feel like, wow, why couldn't everybody be raised that way, right? Because it makes such a difference. Now, Allie, it was interesting learning about how you were raised. You obviously are raised like you don't say racist things and you're nice to everybody, but there's that whole sense of like, well, we're just colorblind and we just don't see it. And, and I'd love for you to start with why that's such a problem. It sounds like you were really raised to be anti-racist, whereas I was kind of raised to be non-racist, which is another way of saying basically white people are situated outside of the whole puzzle of racism. And it has nothing to do with us. As long as we're not perpetuating it, we don't. there's nothing for us to do. And um, yeah, so the common messages I got were don't, don't be racist, <laughs> but that meant like don't be overtly hateful, violent, you know, KKK type racist. Don't... Um, uh, don't talk about race. It's the racists who talk about race. We should be colorblind. That's how we can be good people. And um, I used to think that was kind of a unique message. Now I'm realizing as I talk to white people all over the country, most of us were socialized to be colorblind. Your story is actually very, very rare. And, um, and, and then that's how we teach our kids. That's what we're teaching our kids now because it's what we know. And, um, and so it can be really hard to break out of that that training, which actually kind of inhabits our bodies. So then when I feel, when I talk about race and racism, or even the introduction you gave, racism is your problem. I'd be, I'd be go, I'd be like, oh no, what is, first of all, how could it possibly be my problem? I'm not racist. Second of all, what am I supposed to do about it? And so in the book, we're trying to say, yeah, I mean, that was the reaction I heard when I first heard that quote from James Baldwin, that racism is a white person problem. Um, and what Eleanor and I are trying to do is to support white people to figure out how is it my problem? How does racism hurt me too? And how can I use my position as a white person to talk to other white people and really make change? 
Exactly. And, you know, it was interesting, uh, Eleanor, when I was reading about you and you were talking about coming from Italy. And, you know, when you ask somebody, how are you? They actually tell you, whereas you had to learn here. They just want you to say, I'm fine. And you so we can learn this, right? Even if it's something that we haven't been taught. Well, absolutely. I always say when I came to the United States, I didn't take a course on white supremacy and how to be a good white racist person in the United States. I simply uh, tried to operate as a white person, especially as a white cis woman within the United States. And that brought me to absorb all these racial stereotypes and racial messages. And I didn't have to take continuing education courses either, which means I'm constantly re-socialized into a frame of reference that ties my own sense of safety to a racial hierarchy. And so by because I want to stay safe and I want to stay well, I keep perpetuating it. And what I don't realize that in that process, I experience an enormous amount of racial stress because every interaction that I have in the world around me is embedded in a system that is full of spikes. <laughs> and the spikes, they go primarily in one direction. And because I am part of the system, I also uh, continuously bump into them. And so, you know, it's interesting to do this, speak about this book in the context of health. Right. So racial stress is real. And there are also very real ways in which um, we are as white people asked to participate in a, in a regular basis. And what the book does, it's really highlights the ways in which we can disentangle ourselves from it and then actively pursue something quite different. Yeah, I think that's so beautiful. And it's interesting, too. I mean, with COVID, it opened up a lot of people's eyes who didn't see the health disparities, right? But when you see that more people of color were affected and died and had less good care, and I've been talking about disparities forever, but a lot of people are like, oh, okay. And it, But the thing is, they might feel badly, but then there's no action taken. And so this book is about getting together with white friends, colleagues, family, and actually having the tough conversations. I think, Ali, you had written one of the things about it is at first you felt like, this was just meant to make you as a white person feel bad. Right. And that's not, or that, was that my, yeah. Right. And that's not, that's not what it's about. And I wish people could like stop white people could stop being so fragile and, just, and maybe I'm, I'm kind of take a tough love approach of like, come on, let's step up and, and, and not be babies. Well, so here's the thing is that we, we like, well, I think what Robin D'Angelo is writing in white fragility is so powerful because she's like, actually like we were socialized to be fragile. I mean, the reason why this is so widespread is because this is what keeps this system operating. Like if white, if white people get defensive and confused and, and refuse to learn because, uh, because this threatens our sense of reality so much. Um, then we're not gonna, then the system can stay the way it is. And so we, what Eleonora has taught me is that we actually, the reason we're fragile is because we're really good students of the world around us. And so if we can learn how to survive in a white supremacy, we can also learn how to unlearn it. And so what we, but like Eleanor is saying, it's, it's re-socializing us every day. So we have to just be conscious of it. And the thing is, if we're all fragile, okay. So the one thing is like, let's just stop being babies. I feel bad saying that. But no, it's real. It's real. I mean, I, I think that there's like a lot of people asking that question. I think we ask that of each other as white people. Um, and, and yet, there have been so many moments where I needed support from other white people um, because I was so, I felt guilty. I felt so embarrassed. I was deep in my shame as a white person because I was just at the beginning of the process of learning about how much race, systemic racism had impacted my life. And the only way to move out of it was really supportive, loving people. And Eleonora was one of these people. And so what we want to say is that 
if you have white people around you who are acting, you know, who are really like stuck in their fragility, you can support them. And it's not about coddling white people. It's a strategic move to support. Because the thing is, it's, it's not enough to have one or two really strong anti-racist white people. We need millions. And yes. We need millions operating over the course of eight generations, according to Resma Menekem. So that's why, that, you know, that's why we need one another um, to support each other because the thing is we're all going to feel that guilt. At some point, we're all going to feel that shame. And it's not, it doesn't mean there's something wrong with us that we're feeling it. it it's actually a very normal developmental stage. But um, black psychologist Janet Helm says it's step two on a six-step process that just keeps going throughout your life. So keep moving so that you can be the person who contributes to healthy multiracial community rather than the white person who just feels a lot of guilt and tries to avoid this conversation whenever they can, which, let's be honest, a lot of us are some days because it's it, it feels exhausting. And that's why we need white allies who can pick us up and keep keep walking with us. Right. Eleanor, I'd love for you to, to comment on that as well. Yeah, so... It's interesting because we we really want to infuse a different lens into this whole conversation and go from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. And that's a trauma-informed lens. That's what we think of as trauma-informed anti-racism. So it's not by chance that we all as white people look very similar when we get defensive because we are trained the same way. We're trained to feel scared and afraid of a conversation and therefore what you're seeing in white fragility is our stress response we fight fly freeze and so we look in very predictable ways and if we sit in front of somebody who is in that defensive spot and we have not learned how to hold those feelings within our own bodies we'll fight fight freeze to their defenses response and then we're not walking the path with them we're in fact pushing them away from the path and making the bar of entry look if you're not perfect i don't want you here with me and what ali keeps saying is that we have to walk this path together and there are concrete skills that we have to use within ourselves to be able to sit in the fire of that moment and join with each other and and help people go from A to B or D to E. I know we would like people to go from A to Z, but that's not how we learn. That's not how it works. And so in order for people of color and native people not to have to do the work for us, we have to do that work with each other and walk that path with each other. Ali and I consult with each other all the time and say, you know, I think I said something really stupid yesterday, you know, or I really <laughs> bumped into something. And so it's much more of a circular process. And yeah, hopefully we'll make less and less mistakes and we'll see things more and more. But now, you know, all the tools that we're in this book are things that Ali and I use pretty much on a regular basis, you know, with each other. You know, it's such a short interview. I took a bunch of notes and a bunch of quotes, but I want you to come back. We still have five minutes. It's interesting because you we touched on this. You write in the book, race conversations do produce feelings of guilt, shame, anger, sadness, frustration, and anxiety. Many people, not just me and not just white people. We have to just find a way to 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 deal with that, right? And that's what's so important in the book is you're not just like me being like, oh, quit being babies. You're like, no, no, here's how we do it, right? That's why your book is, is better than me. <laughs> Because I'm like, stop being a baby. Well, that's, I mean, it's like we, we're all kind of feeling that. And even to ourselves, like Eleanor said, we're like, why Why can't I just buck up? Why can't I stop being a baby? And yet, like, there have been moments when I do something or say something wrong. I mean, just last year I was volunteering at the polls and I said hello to my black neighbor. And I called him by name and actually it was the wrong person. And you could tell in that moment he was like, Oh my God, I'm just trying to like come vote. And some white lady like see her calls me by some other black man's name, you know? And I just like was just crushing under 
the the guilt and Eleonora was able to like support me and talk me through it and not to let me off the hook but to just like sit with me in the shame and say like I've done that before it's embarrassing when our implicit biases kind of rear their ugly heads for the world to see like oh yeah I'm not perfect I try every day to be anti-racist and actually there's all this ways that racism still lives in me um, and we need people who can help us to hold that and see it so we can deal with it. Um, and also so we can move on because it doesn't help for me to sit in the dark for a week and feel bad about myself, even though it does need to kind of acknowledge that, that that moment is also not insignificant. Yeah. You know, something happened with my daughter last year who we've raised her, my husband, and I'd be anti-racist and we have a pit bull, which is like the sweetest baby ever. It's a whole nother topic, but pit bulls are great at any rate. Um, this guy, this Hispanic guy, and he had lots of tattoos, came up to say hi to Blue, and 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 Lila got, I saw she, she kind of, I could sense she was a little uncomfortable, and we were supposed to go to the beach, and she goes, Mom, I don't deserve to go to the beach, let's just go home. And I was like, why? She's like, because I felt uncomfortable around him, because he looked like a bad guy that I was on a show I watched, he was a drug dealer, and I talked to her about, you know, the way they cast certain people and certain cultures and different characters, and and, you know, we talked about that. And we also watched Jane the Virgin and, you know, Ugly Betty and shows that have very positive examples of um, Latinx people and Hispanic people and Mexican people. But I was really proud of her because she I said, honey, you don't have to feel bad, but you acknowledged it. And we're still going to the beach. And let's have a conversation. And I thought that was awesome. Can you imagine if we did that for all of our white colleagues and friends? And like so celebrated the mistakes and the realization of the mistakes and just honored that they are in process of self-reflection and seeing it. And the, the irony of it all, right, is because we want to be good people, because we care about each other. We don't want to harm each other. And so if we get stuck on the question, what's wrong with you, we never get to the point that what hurts so much when we realize that we have done something racist or something biased is what we call moral injury. We have violated one of our own moral codes. And so there are actually really powerful ways to to process guilt, to process shame in ways that are productive rather than ways that are harmful to us and to the movement. Because if we get stuck in shame, guilt, and blame, we don't take steps forward. So you don't get to the beach. You don't get to an anti-racist path. You know, <laughs> you don't get to, to the good stuff and the love movement that Ali always speaks about. And so you have. it's okay to feel guilt and shame. They're just emotions that tell you, hey, that's not the best way to go. This is how you process them and move to a place that is a much more productive way to go. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, first of all, I hate that I have to let you go. Second of all, I hope you'll come back. Everyone could be anti-racist. I mean, that's the thing. Like, the book is so in-depth and so well-written and so engaging. It's our problem, our path, collective anti-racism for white people. Ali Michael, Eleonora, I feel like I'm saying it wrong. I apologize. Eleonora Bartoli. That's a beautiful name. Okay, tell us all the places we can find out about you amazing women and your fantastic book. So you can find the book at corwin.com or bookshop.org, which is a great online distributor that will give money to your local bookstore. You can also find Eleonora's information at com. Make sure you include every vowel, two O's, Eleonora, and then allymichael.org. Uh, is my website and you'll find connections to our social media there. And just please uh, find um, us because we'd love to hear your thoughts and we would love to um, cross paths with you as we're all out there trying to do our best. Absolutely. I want to thank you both so much.
Well, that's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you. And we would appreciate it if you could please rate and review and leave a comment because the more you engage with our podcast, the more you will find it and help other people find it wherever they listen to their podcast. So be sure to follow us. I'm at Andrea Donsky and at Naturally Savvy and Lisa at Lisa Davis MPH. Thank you so much. And please share this episode because the more you share shows you care. We'll see you next time.